Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. This week, I am reporting live from another city. I'm in New York City. And I was doing something so exciting today that I'm so glad I just got to share with you. Um, I have been coming back and forth to New York this week for press. Some stuff I don't know if I can share yet, but this I can. I was on Good Morning America this morning, which was absolutely surreal. I mean, like your and your comments on Instagram from the clip like have me tearing up left and right. Like I, I honestly, I've 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 been at this a while, and like I've almost accepted that it's kind of my a trademark of mine that I will sing the praises and celebrate the likes of the mainstream. As I've told you, it's my lazy river for six years talking about things, but I will almost comedically never get mainstream attention. <laughs> like at this, at this point, it's just, it's like almost my podcast is so amazingly niche that I never saw myself really realistically being able to get the sort of things I talk about on a, on a mainstream platform. And I just, yeah, like good morning, America, America. Like I, I don't even think I could get on Good Morning Arby's. Like the opportunity to ev- evangelize the like what you like plight of the Beths on a national scale is just something I'm so grateful for. And honestly, I never thought I'd see the day. And I also never thought my national TV debut would involve me saying the phrase "oink oink baby." But hey, I'm here for it. If you want, you can see the whole clip. It's like a four minute interview on Instagram, and I love that they chose the Jesse Spano mini chapter to talk about because not only is it a way that I think this book bleeds nicely into Gen X as well given like I'm on the older side of like the median age of a millennial and a lot of my interests were influenced by my siblings who were older than me but the Jesse Spano analysis is part of like this mini chapter called Saved by the Bell Jar it's kind of like the ultimate intersection of my early days in media market research paired with my love of like 90s teenage sitcoms paired with me trying to take a more responsible feminist lens on my analytics that I do in public facing places. And yeah, it's a part of the book I'm really proud of. And it's a chapter that had three different iterations. At one point, it was three times as long. It had three different chapter titles. At one point, it was like the Jesse Spano C-SPAN dilemma or something like that. At one point, it was Saved by the Bella Swan. And it ended up being saved by the bell jar. And I pulled out some of the material that was in the essay that I thought made it a bit too convoluted. And I like at a point could not tell if like it was pregnancy brain and I was losing my mind or if I was making sense explaining my journey of feminism through Jesse Strickland and Felswan. Anyway, those are the types of things I'll tell you about. I think I might do like a Patreon series chapter by chapter, whether you want to listen for like your book club's sake or it's kind of like the director's cut. Like there. This book was so much, so much work. It went through so many iterations that like every chapter kind of has like a really specific reason I did it or an interesting place I wrote it or what inspired it. And I'll tell you about how it changed a million times. And I just didn't know a lot about writing a book. And for those of you, you know, voracious readers who want to hear about the process, I am more than happy and willing to talk about it. But this is like the episode airing the week of its debut. It comes out Tuesday, January 23rd, two days from now. It is called One in a Millennial. And if you can tolerate me talking about it for one more episode, I would so appreciate it. And um, in return, this week's episode, I'm sharing one of my favorite chapters from the book for free from my audiobook recording. So you can have an idea of what it's like if you're on the fence. I, I 
never want to take your money if it's something you're not sure you'll be interested in. And you can also read a free chapter on Marie Claire's website because it was the one in the millennial was a, the book pick for January and they published chapter one limited too. Also, I love and adore you if you are willing to monetarily support it. But also I understand you might not be able to, especially because only the hardcover and like is out right now. But please reserve it at your local library. A ton of people are doing that. It's been fun to like see that there's like wait lists in some places. And my God, I love a library. I want people to support their libraries. And yeah, request it if you uh, don't see it there. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. Today's episode, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing one of my favorite chapters from the book. It's one of the lighter chapters. It's one of the first chapters I wrote in full. It also has an interesting story behind it. I'll tell on Patreon about how I connect this chapter to finding clarity by finally like getting back on meds when I was having a hard time. I think it was in early 2022. And I've just never had such an onslaught of clear memories in such great detail in my life that I, I don't know, something weird happened with this chapter. It's not like it's brilliant. It's just like specific, I think. Because AOL Instant Messenger, which is what You've Got Mail is about, like, it's been covered brilliantly by Pen15. Like, this is kind of the type of nostalgic lore like BuzzFeed listicles are made of. Like, this is a common nostalgic topic, like that of an inflatable chair or a lava lamp. But I wanted to talk about it from, like, a different angle. And what I ended up producing was just kind of like a real deep dive and that kind of leads into a kind of darker arc throughout the book, which is me starting to, like, really rely on male validation. So I'll kind of give you some background because I can. I love a director's cut, but you've got mail really centers on one of the book's core themes, which is the depth that can be found in surface level interest. In many ways, I'm trying to make a case throughout like how millennials are misunderstood and we've done a lot of distinct and important things and the media is kind of focused more on a negative angle toward our tendencies and forgets that we grew up in a world that no longer exists and we straddle like tradition and modern opportunity and if you're going to call us like lazy and entitled, like maybe consider we're doing something differently that's not bad before you label it negatively. A lot of times when someone calls you lazy, it's because you want work-life balance, you know, God forbid. Or when we're called job hoppers, it's like on what planet would we be loyal to companies when we entered the workforce in the worst economic recession since the Great Depression and no company's ever been loyal to us? Like, why would you hold it against a whole generation that they've learn the hard way that they have to be advocates for themselves in their own careers. There's a lot of themes, but two of the biggest in the book are the depth that can be found in surface level interests. And the things that like millennials aren't always given enough credit for ways we may be mis misunderstood. And you've got mail as a chapter where I'm making a case for how I think that millennials are like remarkable digital pioneers because it was a huge undertaking for us to be the ones to first navigate the you know, and thus define the terms of curating an online persona. In my case, before I could drive or see a PG-13 movie, we navigated the, you know, worldwide web wild west without a blueprint or any knowledge of its longevity. I just think it's interesting. We talk about Facebook being so disruptive in creating this category of social networking. But I think people forget AIM was a social network and like a virtual water cooler for young people to connect with one another for like the better part of 12 years from 1997 to 2009 is when I had active screen names. And that is a literal third of my life. Right? I'm 36. Is that right? I don't know. As I also say in the book, math class is tough. So anyway, I think that 
AOL Instant Messenger, but since it like went completely defunct and like disappeared, it's almost treated with the nostalgic, ephemeral spirit of like pogs, you know? But like, no, this isn't something we use for a very brief window of time. And that's why it's notable, burn bright, but it burnt out fast. Like, Mike, this was my social life <laughs> for the better part of my adolescence. And, you know, per the depth found in shallow places, I wanted to talk not only about the comedy of like screen name choosing and away messages and trying to attract a vacation boyfriend, but also make a case for how AIM was one of those early interests of mine that, you know, people talked about like it would rot your brain. But for me, it was uh, it was a safe space where I could overcome the awkwardness and shyness I was experiencing in person and take my time to craft sentences and showcase my personality behind the safety of a screen. And I think so much of my writing style and sense of humor and like ability to establish connections with people virtually was born from this time when on the surface, I was quite literally just doing everything in my power to try and get a boyfriend <laughs> or keep a boyfriend, honestly. Uh, the the, that's like the great thing about life is you don't always know in real time what will ultimately be impactful and what makes you a product of your time. And for me, so much of what I hope to do with One in a Millennial is be kind and rewind, so to speak, um, and like excavate your millennial memories to not only celebrate them and honor their validity in ways you maybe didn't feel empowered to do at the time, but also like see how much value there is in the minutia of life more so than the milestones. Not Not to provide a spoiler alert for a book that can't really have spoilers, but um, <laughs> toward the end, I kind of reflect on the writing the book loosely through a, a weird <laughs> Real Housewives parallel. I, I talk about how writing this book made me feel like a reality TV producer, kind of like verbally paint a picture the best I could, commenting in retrospect, like a talking head interview from like what I remember from my perspective that isn't necessarily like a universal truth. But and then, you know, often arguing for the plot and, and for drama and like the least riveting of places, which housewives always do. But and I kind of go on to explain, like, that's why I love reality TV. The best parts never drive the plot. The art to me happens outside of the main arc. At the time in my life when I wrote this book, I hadn't experienced any positive milestones for a while, career, personally or otherwise. But while I was writing it, I, I kind of realized how much of our identity comes from careers, comes from becoming a wife or a mom and I was just feeling like a little bit lost in terms of like positive milestones I could count my days between that that motivated me and that made me feel hopeful and I think that the older we get the more our life can feel very defined by milestones it is kind of weird how all of a sudden your identity is tied up in like completely different things from the ways you once strung together your days the past two years of my life were utterly consumed with peeing on sticks and doing rounds of IVF and dealing with pregnancy loss and the subsequent tear for myself and all of you that our legislators are making decisions for our bodies in ways that put our literal lives on the line. It was interesting writing this in such a, a vulnerable time when I was trying to argue for people really honoring the things that make them who they are. But I never felt farther from who I always was. Because I was in a period of my life where I was so focused on becoming someone else, which was a mom. And I felt very defined by um, disappointment in many points. I felt very angry at, at how much of my adolescence involved male validation. And I honestly maybe over-focused on it because I think especially with where, you know, the political climate, I was kind of like, how? Like, how did, how did we get here? I mean, I kind of reached my own conclusion that a big part of why I even wrote the book 
especially given its timing. I realized it was this weird quest for like exploring and cementing my own identity, like on my own as one person, one millennial, as the fangirl I always was. It was a really healthy thing because it it caused me to sift through everything to find the joy in the, in the smallest of things and write about it. And hopefully by proxy, you'll think of a lot of yours too. And like my favorite reaction to the book is like, people always reach out and they tell me one insanely hyper-specific thing buried in the farthest back of their <laughs> of their brain. And it's something they loved or cared about or made fun of for, and they hadn't thought of since. And it makes them feel like themselves again, if only for a moment. And like, I know it sounds kind of silly, but like, I, I that's the response that I absolutely adore. I can't possibly represent a, a group of 65 million people. And, and I even, the title is intentional. So, you know, it's just one millennial's experience. I am not trying to speak for everyone. Um, but I hope by speaking for myself, You'll find yourself lost in some of this minutia that I think makes us who we are. I love to be really specific and it's on purpose, like because I love the feeling of catching a reference you get and it kind of eradicates the 50 other times you maybe missed a reference. Like in Gilmore Girls, how, how, I didn't even know who Paul Anka was at the time. And when he was on uh, New Year's Eve with Andy and Anderson, I literally in my head, I was like, oh, my God, no, we're about to... Ring in the mirror with a sheepdog. And I was like, oh my God, Pauline is a real person. Also, Jason Bateman's married to his daughter. I, I like I knew this, but also the dog is my default Paulinka. Anyways, point is, this is a chapter that I actually really like for its specificity. And, you know, for all the ways you risk alienating a reader and doing that, I think you gain more by what they do relate to and catch. And hopefully it's at least fun, even if you don't entirely relate to it. Anyway, you guys, I'll get to the excerpt. And then after it, I am going to share with you perhaps the most important part of this book that I've said in passing at different points, but the thing that I like want to get across the most, especially if you're a longtime listener of this podcast and you've stuck with me the past six years, is just how, to me, this this is literally the book the Beth spilt. It's the only, the Beths are the only way I got this book deal. They're the only people that have pushed my career forward from how logistically I actually was able to get put this book out into the world to the content that informed it. Like you're you're such a huge part of it wing to wing. And for paid subscribers, I uploaded a video that's my entire prologue and introduction, which is like 40 some minutes um, that I, you know, re-recorded because I had a bit of a meltdown after being, um, I'll explain it. The audiobook was a journey um, because I literally like recorded it days before I gave birth, preeclampsia and pulmonary edema, like pending unbeknownst to me. But I was like, ah, pregnancy's miserable, right? So it makes sense that I can't breathe and have blood pooling at my ankles. And I feel like I want to die. But yeah, I was not well and I had my own voice for a living. So like everybody I played it for is like, I can't tell. But to me, I, I just I'm like, like for all the self-doubt I had writing, I knew I could narrate. <laughs> this is what I do for a living. And I, of course, you know, we plan and God lols. And he was like, oh, when you got the book deal, you said you were speechless. He's like an Amelia Bedelia type. So he was like, I thought, you know, I would just completely rob you of your ability to to speak come time to record your break of a lifetime with its audiobook. And sure enough, I would have to like, I would go up one flight of stairs and have to take a break because I was so winded. And that was, that was a problem, you guys. And I didn't know it. And nobody's making me be there. St. Martin's was as flexible as ever, but in true to millennial form, didn't have maternity leave because I followed my dumb dreams and, uh, you know, didn't have childcare lined up. I'm in a city without family. Like I, I didn't know what I was looking for at the time. I didn't know if postpartum would be like a nightmare or a daydream. 
And so to do it later, I was so nervous because what if I couldn't? And then somebody else had to record it by the deadline. I would be damned if I wasn't the one recording this audiobook, you know? And it was ironic to hear me reading back about so many women's issues when I was going through perhaps one of the saddest hallmarks of womanhood, which is being in such deep dismissal of our own suffering that we consider it normal. Um, and anyway, so the audiobook was like such a journey I could tell so many stories about. And I'm just so proud of it. And for once, I just want to like be really excited about it. And I just think it's interesting how life keeps imitating art. Um, even at the childless millennial dilemma I posed earlier in terms of like, this book's quest for my own identity kind of being ironically offset by having to be created during the years when my life wasn't about me anymore. But like plot twist of all plot twists, nothing has shocked me more than how much I love being a mom. And, you know, maybe that's a conversation for a different book. Kate from the Beyond, I forgot something. Um, it's a couple of points you'll hear me say out of nowhere. So random. I have these like interstitial passages that make a hell of a lot more sense in a hard copy. Um, but I wanted to find a fun way to incorporate like my kind of signature here, be there in five, which is tangents that nobody ever asked for, nor is better off from hearing, but that I feel are necessary to move the plot forward. Um, and to kind of, this census book is kind of like me reclaiming things I was embarrassed by. I, I wanted to like kind of turn an insult that I that was given to me many times in my youth and use it for a storytelling device so i called the interstitials like the call outs in this book so random and in the audiobook when you hear me say that it means i'm about to elaborate on something i say in passing you know i love a pop-up video and i also call my mini chapters pop-up biblios that are longer form at the end of chapters when i want to elaborate on something like in chapter one i mentioned american girl dolls in passing I think we've covered plenty of American Girl lore and other people do it better. And I didn't need to devote a whole chapter to it, but it was such a huge part of my childhood and identity and something I wanted to celebrate and criticize. So I did a pop-up biblio about it where I talk about it for like three pages instead of like 40, you know? So yeah, just a heads up that if you hear me say so random, it is so random. It does not belong there, but that is the entire point. <laughs> okay, <laughs> bye. Have you guys seen those TikToks about like, how the amount of protein you're supposed to eat in a day to have like a balanced, nutritious life is like actually an absurd amount of protein. I had no idea. I was I, I, I was not eating anywhere close to the amount I should be. So you can imagine I was intrigued when I heard from Chomps. I've heard other peers in my industry mention that Chomps is the perfect on-the-go snack that makes 24 hours feel like enough hours in a day. I just am always, I need protein at like 4 p.m. You know, when you like are crashing, you want a little snack after work, but before dinner, this is always the time of day when I'm aimlessly snacking on whatever I can find to hold myself over for dinner. But I really should be snacking on something with that genuinely refuels me. And Chomps make snacking simple. Their tasty meat sticks are packed with mouthwatering flavor and only the best real ingredients. Each delicious Chomps meat stick has the protein your body needs, up to 12 grams per stick, without any unhealthy additives and zero grams of sugar. They're low-carb, keto-friendly, allergy-friendly, and don't contain any fillers. Chomps are simply made with natural ingredients you can feel good about. They only source from farmers who raise animals humanely and farm responsibly, and Chomp sticks come in nine flavors, so there's something for everyone. Or you can grab a variety pack to satisfy your whole family's taste buds. You can pair them with everything from fruit to hummus to crackers, and they're just like a great daily snack that I've been thoroughly enjoying, but they also have thousands of five-star reviews, so don't listen to me. Snackers around the world are satisfying their hunger cravings with chomps. 
And right now, Chomps is offering our listeners 20% off your first order and free shipping when you go to chomps.com slash be there in five. Go to chomps.com slash be there in five to see all the delicious flavors and get 20% off your first order and free shipping. That's C-H-O-M-P-S dot com slash be there in five. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Everybody's asking me about my meat stick routine. (laughs) Three, you've got mail. One of the unlikely places I learned some of life's greatest lessons was AOL Instant Messenger, AIM. No shade to Mario's side gig or queen icon Mavis Beacon, but AIM is where I was taught typing. We may have near-empty 401ks, but I personally don't think we talk enough about millennials' impressive WPMs. When AOL came out, I think I was around 10 years old, and despite parental controls, the World Wide Web felt like it was at my fingertips. To be more specific, the keyboard was literally at my fingertips, but the process of getting online required a lot of twiddling of the thumbs and a household of pinky promises to not pick up the phone. Despite our elders thinking we came out of the womb texting, many of us had much more pure and disconnected childhoods. When older generations give us a hard time for our modern conveniences or partake in the in-my-day type discussions, I think they forget millennials have our own version of the olden days just in the form of clunky technology I like to refer to as the millennialden days. It's like, yeah, I bet walking miles to school in the snow was hard, but have you ever had to navigate an empty new-release VHS shelf at Blockbuster with a sleepover crew in tow that will never achieve rental consensus? Have you ever spent a night being disinvited to a slumber party in solitude, only to play solitaire and fail to experience the abundance of flying card stacks graphics and of its time make it rain you hoped would solve your pain? Have you ever played fast and loose with a LimeWire computer virus that will come to your Windows 95 before your Melissa Etheridge album even finishes downloading? Your skin just gets tougher when a burned CD takes eight hours to buffer. And no one respects millennials for the baby pirates we once were, committing federal crimes on the daily to pay our respects to the arts by not paying anyone in the arts. With America Online, once you cleared the phone lines, you were forced to withstand the unique audible hazing the Internet made us go through before we were allowed to join in on the fun. The sound of dial-up. After nearly five minutes of listening to combinations of beeping, screeching, and scratching, it began to sound like two machines in a cat fight. I don't know how to best describe it other than what I assume it would sound like if a melody of insanity sampled a smoke detector that desperately needed its batteries replaced and then hurled itself into a garbage disposal. Outside of the years when my alarm clock was replaced with my brother's Kenny G phase, dial-up is probably my ear's worst shared memory. But something about the anticipation made it worth it. There's a reason Nora Ephron's masterpiece You've Got Mail is one of the finest films of all time, according to me. Kathleen Kelly was right. You go online, and your breath catches in your chest until you hear three little words. You've got mail. In my case, I was hopeful my crush would see me online and send me an instant message, allowing me to finally relish in my three-word tween-age dream. You've got mail. M-A-L-E. Even though I wonder who I'd be if I played with STEM toys, I firmly believe I gained transferable life skills while navigating the early days of the Internet by learning how to hold digital conversations. However, at the time, my agenda was not educational. My commitment to being the latest and greatest and up-to-datest in digital savviness was in pursuit of one thing and one thing alone, a boyfriend. 
These romantic exchanges were not quite love letters of great men. They were more like instant messages from OK Dudes. But I feel nostalgic for how assembling keyboard characters developed my character all the same. In retrospect, I see so much benefit to practicing wordsmithing and remote interactions, but I also feel sad about how I genuinely thought these people were into me, and they were obviously using me for emotional support and platonic company. More on that later. We're now so deep in the worlds of Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok that I think we forget about the social networking stair steps that were far from blips on the radar. From 1997 to 2009, 12 years of my life, AIM was my water cooler. As I've come to appreciate in retrospect, it was also kind of a safe space for trying on different versions of myself at an age where I lacked a strong sense of identity. Although, from the screen names we chose, it was already pretty clear we were all hanging by a thread. Unbeknownst to us, these questionable choices would represent our digital identities for years to come. Choosing a screen name, or SN, sounds like it would be a pretty straightforward task to the tune of picking a name in combination with some variation of initials and or notable numbers. But nope, not for me. Not many millennials. We didn't have the foresight to understand their potential longevity, nor did we grasp the brand equity that's potentially built with one, making the switching costs feel too high when you go to college as XX baby love Chris K or third base girly 12. You'd be faced with a painstaking process of deciding between foregoing your social clout or going to college openly advertising Chris Kirkpatrick as your favorite member of NSYNC. Risky. With the latter name, you'd be forced to figure out how to deal with the hand you've been dealt when your screen name sounds like you're super into doing hand stuff, despite that it was from eight years ago when you just wanted everyone to know your softball field position. Since screen names would get taken, you had to innovate around the root word of your ideal username with terms of endearment. In hindsight, these did less to differentiate you than they did to make it crystal with a K clear to internet predators you were like an actual infant. But that didn't break our spirits. For example, if you took creative liberties with the spelling and alternating caps of terms of endearment like QT, baby, girl, slash G-U-R-L, slash girly, love, slash L-U-V, chick, slash chica, you were usually in the clear. If it's taken, easy. Bookend it with XX or XO or X0 and or add LIL to the beginning and your XXG00DASG0LDXX, good as gold. When push came to shove, we would abandon letters and replace O's with zeros, L's with ones, and or just drop vowels altogether until your screen name appears to have been created the moment you chose to clean your keyboard due to the volume of characters chosen that do not belong side by side. Though I guess trying to have people guess if HRSEGRL610 means horse girl or hearse girl keeps things interesting. One's of Felicity Merriman, the other of Veda Sultanfus. Win-win. One of my screen names was so bottom of the barrel for word combinations, what I wanted was crazy and cool, but what I got was K-R-A-Z-E-N-K-E-W-L. Krasenkuhl. I don't know what a Krasenkuhl is, but I think I saw it at an Ikea next to an Ektorp sofa. I had so many, the first being Love Plum One, a nickname from my dad, Blue Eyes with a Z, 878, Katie May 87, and the list goes on. One strange weekend, I soft-launched Waffle 77 in honor of the amount of Waffle Crisp cereal I was eating at the time, which was a mistake, or rather a sticky situation I should have seen coming, not just because I was starting to perspire that faux syrupy glaze, but also because it would solicit randoms in chat rooms to ask me about my nooks and crannies. 
I have a vague memory of being with a friend when she started an account, and it was supposed to be something like I Dunno 4048. She could only get Idana 4048, which completely changed the integrity of the brand, and I don't know why I still find this so funny. But I, Tanya's got nothing on Idana because that same friend, we'll call her Vanessica, hacked into my other friend's AOL account and IM'd me, then proceeded to suspiciously jump right into, Vanessica is so annoying, let's not walk home from school with her tomorrow. Suspicious and, fresh off my peak Harry the spy days, when I didn't understand that it wasn't normal to bring a fresh notepad and trespass onto your neighbor's property, I had the sleuthing wherewithal to call the friend's house, who was allegedly IMing me, and lo and behold, the signal wasn't busy, therefore I knew she wasn't online. It was obviously Vanessica trying to trap me into talking badly about her so she could use it against me. Did someone put tariffs on imports? I am spilling this tea. I wish I could tell you about a dramatic call-out or falling out, but I responded by being like, I love Vanessica. She's such a great friend, and I never want to leave her out. If she was trying to trick me before I had done anything wrong, I couldn't imagine what she'd pull if I made her feel called out or embarrassed. I was less focused on her doing something mean and more focused on the fact that she was doing something mean to me. Because it meant that she probably didn't like me. I was always less concerned with justice or being right, and more interested in doing everything in my power to get people to like me. This is terribly unhealthy behavior. It's almost like I heard the phrase, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, and I Amelia bedelia that shit and took it literally, maintaining friendships with people who were mean to me in the absence of personal benefit. Well, I've gotten better at this. To this day, I find it remarkable that anyone can eat, sleep, or, like, breathe knowing someone else is mad at them. The other big aim drama from the early days is when my friend, I'll call her Elizabeth, made so much fun of me because I allegedly put up the wrong lyrics to Cisco's thong song on my away message. I put she had dumps like a truck, 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 and she told me it was drums like a truck, then proceeded to laugh maniacally in multiple IMs, ridicule me, and bring it up again at school that I had messed up the lyrics, and the whole time I was right. Isn't it weird that this still bothers me? There are a million things you can make fun of me for, but when your talents are few and far between, it stings to be ridiculed for something you actually know you're good at. I'm nothing if not a vault of 90s top 40 lyrics, and it felt uncool for my lyrical integrity to be put in question. With parental controls, I think mine were on young teen. You could instant message, but you couldn't get on the World Wide Web. Without Ask Jeeves or Alta presenting me the lyrics from its vista, I had no way of knowing I was being so aggressively gaslit by Elizabeth in real time. Lord knows I didn't have the album leaflet. The Thong Song single CD would have never been allowed in my house. When we would cruise around in my mom's Ford Windstar, one of the features was the ability to mute the radio from the back. Among my siblings, one of our favorite songs was Torn by Natalie and Bruglia, and we'd take turns hitting mute when she'd sing in the chorus lying naked on the floor. In retrospect, my mom's not a weirdo. She wouldn't have cared. It's not like I grew up in that footloose town. I get her not wanting me to scream sing in fifth grade. Is she perverted like me? Would she go down on you in a theater, per the Alanis of it all? In fact, I was so committed to sexy song lyrics, one time my parents found the lyrics to Shaggy's It Wasn't Me in the Printer Tray, and I'm 99% sure it was me who printed them out. I have to laugh thinking about my mom and dad reading a Word document printed out with lines like, Picture this, we were both butt naked, banging on the bathroom floor, without melody or context. They called a family meeting, and in an impressive moral loophole, we all denied it, but never lied, saying it wasn't me when they asked what it was, having no idea it was the song title and not a formal alibi. Anyway, back to emails, M-A-L-E-S. One option for digital seduction was to create a screen name involving a hobby or interest you did not possess in hopes of impressing your crush. 
While I was in the throes of tween orthodontia and didn't have many options for a boyfriend at school, I set my sights on a far more elusive creature, a vacation boyfriend. Ideally, we would keep in touch via AIM throughout the school year, and I could pretend I was spoken for to look cool while also keeping my options open, in case I found a boyfriend at school who could do things like, I, Donna, hang out in person. I had always heard girls in my class mention hot guys they met on the beach, and I wanted in on the action. I had also been watching a lot of Mary-Kate Nashley movies, and I simply couldn't move forward in life without recruiting a local hottie named something like Blake or Riley for a three-day whirlwind romance that would culminate in a jet ski montage. To this day, one of my core goals in life is to vacation at Atlantis in the Bahamas and get myself romantically entangled in a ring of stolen antiquities wearing a Fendi bucket hat like in Holiday in the Sun. A few years ago, I did a podcast episode about screen names, which made me realize that my experiences truly aren't that unique, as fellow millennials echoed their similar desires to digitally rebrand due to their annual trip to the beach. A common experience was to toy around with screen names like OBX Surf Chica and Alternating Caps and Roxy Quicksilver Babe 007, give or take some digits. So you could have a screen name locked and loaded to give your hypothetical surfer boyfriend, allowing you to maintain an AIM relationship after tearfully parting ways. I did this multiple times and was shocked it didn't work. Did I surf? Nope. Skateboard? Not a once. Own meaningful amounts of Roxy and or Quicksilver garments in my wardrobe? No and no. I just thought the only way I could get a boy to like me was to strip myself of my identity and only represent things he likes. It is a little sad that I thought I had nothing to bring to the table when I first got on AIM, though I suppose all the rebranding did set me up well to take on a vague marketing job later. Now that I think about it, creating a screen name about a hobby I didn't have so I could impress a boy I hadn't met yet to maintain a relationship that did not exist is truly delusional girl boss behavior, and I love that for me. So random, vacation boyfriends. The key to achieving a vacation boyfriend is to spot hot guys in the wild, then do the most while never speaking to them in the least, hoping they notice you in your natural state out of the corner of their eye. But in order to be spotted in your natural state, you first have to change everything about yourself. The screen name was just step one. Once I was in touristy beach town, USA, I would have to embody the laid-back, sun-kissed lifestyle through newly purchased beachy accessories from souvenir shops so I could get noticed. To do this, tell your parents you're going to get shaved ice, then take a detour at the Ron John Surf Shop or Super Wings, and blow your entire allowance on the local landfill's hottest items. Buy a puka shell necklace and a shirt that says lifeguard, or maybe get your name written on a tiny piece of rice if the airbrushed hat is too pricey. Be sure to save room for a license plate keychain that says Surf Diva on Myrtle Beach plates. You can give it to your daughter someday. Even though the Roxy and Quicksilver goods are too expensive, as long as you start wearing anklets, he won't know the difference. Then, just park yourself in the sand, partake in the conspiracy theory of an Irish girl needing a base tan, and commit to leaving it all behind. You changed your screen name, started wearing toe rings, bought a skimboard, and all there's left to do is wait until you become indiscernible from Kate Bosworth and Blue Crush. Full disclosure, this never actually worked for me. I was too scared to talk to boys. Regardless, unlike an MKNA movie, my parents weren't super interested in letting me drive off into the sunset on a Vespa with a townie, but I still tried every year, main charactering hard while listening to Dashboard Confessional, watching the waves crash upon the sand, dreaming of a hot summer night on the boardwalk, where I'd meet a real man, unlike the immature 7th grade boys at my school. I'd have my first kiss and get to tell all my friends, and before we parted ways, I'd say, hey, thanks. Thanks for that summer. 
Even though it never worked out for me, I have no regrets. A wise woman, me, age 12, once put on her away message, the tans may fade, but the memories will last forever. Do they ever. In some exciting personal news, I forgot to order contact lenses, and I'm running pretty low, so you might be seeing me and my pair eyewear on stage while I'm on tour because I don't have time to get other corrective lenses. But I actually don't even care because with pair, you can switch up your look in a snap, literally, because you buy the base frames. They start at $60. Their base glasses are perfect. I wear them all the time. But you can also switch up your look in a snap with top frames that start at just $25. And new designs drop every month, including fun collabs. And you can get new colors, different shades of tortoise. You can get Marvel. You can get sports teams. These are so fun for kids. There's holiday themes. There are endless options with pair eyewear. And I personally like them for traveling because I can pop on the sun topper and have a built-in like pair of prescription sunglasses without having to carry two pairs. I'm a big fan of the Kirby and the Reese, but they're all of the shapes and silhouettes are stunning. And you can do a virtual try-on online. And my mom and I just did that actually. And it's super easy. You just like go through the glasses, take your photo, and you can put on every like single color and style and see what looks good on your face. And it's actually quite realistic. Not like that Cosmo, you know, makeover desktop game of yesteryear. This is like actually a good virtual try-on. They have a curated selection of base frames for men, women, and kids, including wide frames to fit every face and free standard shipping and a flexible 30-day return policy. Visualize a fantastic new year with Pear Eyewear. Go to PearEyewear.com and use code BETHEREIN5 for 15% off your first pair. And support the show by mentioning that BETHEREIN5 sent you in your post-checkout survey. That's Pear, P-A-I-R, Eyewear.com, code BETHEREIN5. Beyond a water cooler in third place, for me, AIM was also a safe space. It was a place that allowed me to transcend my social awkwardness in pursuing friendships and flirting with boys, where I could wow people with what I knew to be my strength, even at a young age. Words. For all the ways people criticize social media for its drafting of keyboard warriors who take advantage of anonymity to spread cruelty, it can also eliminate a person's self-consciousness in ways that are empowering, depending on how you use it. In my case, once I could remove the awkwardness I exhibited in my social interactions, I felt like I was able to be measured by something other than the shallow metrics of teenage socialization. I wasn't worried about the way that I looked or the food in my teeth or wondering if my exhilaration v-neck would make my Christian brothers stumble. It relieved me of the exhausting mechanics I felt at school trying to appear naturally cool. So while I waited for coolness to manifest in my reflexes, I could rely on AIM to proofread and finesse my way into social acceptance. Somewhere beneath the stale glow of a 90s Gateway 2000 desktop computer, despite every time adults told me I was rotting my brain, I found a great deal of confidence in my personality on the internet. Even for a tycoon, the art of aim flirtation was a real roller coaster. And I don't mean to brag, but it was both a gift and a burden to electronically shine so bright in the blue light of America Online. Finding a way for my personality to stand out would come back to megabyte me eventually, but for many years I treated aim flirtation like a part-time job. I remember having multiple chat windows open at once, hedging my bets on which hottie would see me as his model girlfriend when I'd strike my pros. When I started to get emotionally invested, I positioned myself at a specific angle on the couch so the reflection of the desktop in the TV entertainment center could let me down easily if I wasn't receiving a response. First, I'd minimize the windows so I'd see their blinking status in the glass, notifying me someone had replied so I could manage my anticipation prior to seeing the text. They say when God closes a door, he opens a window. But on AIM, when you hear a closed door, you log off windows. The door slamming sound reverberated through my very soul if my crush signed offline without a proper goodbye. 
Like the personalized ringtones of days to come, you could adorn your crushes with custom sounds like a moo or a cha-ching when they signed on, putting out a playroom bat signal telling me to make myself available. I vividly remember the rush that went through my body seeing my crush sign on, the anticipation of hoping he would IM me first, while I waited with bated breath that I'd use as my muse for a future away message about life not being about the breaths you take, but the moments that take your breath away. Hitch. After one too many nights clogging up the phone line waiting for a crush's return, I had to rethink my strategy. Nowadays, it's popular to say if he wanted to, he would. But in my world, I was very accepting of he probs wants to, but like what if his mom picked up the phone and he got kicked off or he has homework or his internet isn't working or he's playing hard to get? What if he wants to so badly, but he just can't right now? Once you realize none of those things are happening and he's not interested, you have to regain your power. This is where away messages and idle statuses come into play. An away message was a beautiful thing. It was like an out-of-office message for teenagers who never actually left the office but wanted to appear as busy and interesting as possible. Now that I think about it, we were glamorizing turmoil and prepping ourselves for hustle culture from a young age with our packed schedules. One way to get noticed was to publish your daily calendar for attention, where you have the sexiness of scarcity, given your back-to-back day, but by sharing it in detail, it's an open invitation for how to reach you. For example, crazy day today, school, V-ball, CPK, Emily's house, homework, more homework, hit the cell. So your crush knew you were way too swamped to be thinking about him, but you were still very reachable in person or by phone. A common form of subtle seduction was to indicate you were in the shower or bath in some way, with shower power giving your crush an opening to reply with something suggestive like, wish I could join, winky face. If you were feeling like your physique wasn't quite where you wanted it, alerting the masses with a working on my fitness from Fergalicious was a way to brag that you're physically active, while also reminding love interests that Phil Vassar won't be the only one showing up to summer with a six-pack. I had a period where I shared a lot of aggressive Vince Lombardi quotes about victory, sports, and athleticism. In retrospect, it's like, relax, you're playing freshman volleyball. I'm not sure you need to be projecting onto peers your new no-guts-no-glory lifestyle. There was a point where I would pick the default options just to be chill and ironic, assuming boys would think it was hot that I wasn't like all these other tryhards. You could pick I am away from my computer right now, but I felt options like I am unavailable because I am playing a computer game that takes up my entire screen to be spicier. But sometimes away messages were simply there to inspire, to be the change you wish to see in the world. Maybe you were having a good day or a moment of clarity and thought it would be important for your peers to remember that it's not about waiting for the storm to pass, it's about learning to dance in the rain. Unfortunately, you probably made a person's tough day measurably worse by choosing to write it with a migraine-inducing combo of radioactive fuchsia on a lime green background, but the intentions were there. Away messages were also a great opportunity to turn passive aggression into an art form. Instead of telling people how you felt or, God forbid, telling people what happened, it was far better to communicate your torment, sorrow, or frustration via an away message so everyone thought it could possibly be directed at them despite having no idea what was going on. This phenomenon was adopted by Facebook users in later years and is best known as vague booking, where people would put things like send prayers on their status then proceed to get an unbelievable amount of attention mostly because no one knew if their thoughts and or prayers were being directed to the big guy because of a terminal illness or because your Toyota Camry is in the shop. If a boy was making you cry, you could put up something like, I less than three walking in the rain because no one can see my tears. 
to alert everyone you're crying, but not make it clear why, which is great because you'd return home from your emo walk to a digital Rolodex of concern. If you wanted a boy to know you're crying because of him, no man is worth your tears, the one who is won't make you cry, was always pretty reliable. It's straightforward but hopeful, providing an opportunity for the boy who made you cry to feel bad about it while also suggesting another suitor could slide right in since you're open to crying less. I like to exhibit my top 40 taste in music along with my troubling low self-esteem with quotes from bands like Train, attempting to solicit male attention with things that weren't so much song lyrics as they were cries for help, like, you see her confidence is tragic, but her intuition magic. Sometimes, when trying to appeal to dudes of the stoner persuasion, I pretend to be into Fish or the Grateful Dead, once quoting Fish as the artist behind Gin and Juice because of an attribution error on LimeWire when I illegally downloaded the song. Dave Matthews Band and OAR were also a safe bet, so putting up something like, celebrate we will, cause life is short but sweet for certain, was a slam dunk if you wanted to get attention by reminding a frat star in training who wears his sunglasses on croquis that you could croak at any minute. Above all else, romantic passive aggression was perhaps best illustrated with emo lyrics from bands like Dashboard Confessional or Taking Back Sunday. Any emo kid knows that the angsty away message was from a Taking Back Sunday song called You're So Last Summer. In retrospect, it is incredibly alarming. I'm going to have to paraphrase here because I don't have the usage license for relaying lengthy lyrics, but it was something along the lines of saying that a person could cut your neck and while you were dying and about to breathe for the last time, you would still say you are sorry for bleeding on the person's blouse. Without the context of knowing that's a song from Taking Back Sunday, I'm shocked parents weren't taking us in Monday to go see a therapist. But the real piece de resistance of sexy scarcity was having your status go idle. It was such a power move. I'd park my mouse in the bottom corner of the screen, demand nobody else in my household touch the computer, and soar like I stepped on a Mario Kart star while I imagined my crush pining for me to rise from the ash-colored gray out of a person who went idle on their buddy list. Long before we diluted and muted our homes with gray or grays in the 2010s, it was the hottest color you could wear online. I had to do everything in my power to not be myself in this era, because the only way to get a guy, according to my sources, friends, and YM Magazine, was to play hard to get, and I was, como se dice, very easy to get. I was always detailed, verbose, emotionally available, and quite literally available. I'd get excited about a boy, talk a little too much, say hi first one too many times, and inevitably watch them lose interest, swearing I'd show up to my next interaction as more of a mute model. Even though I was still shy, once I got going, it was hard for me not to be quite rambly, excitable, and curious, and to this day I still feel embarrassed leaving interactions, wondering if I came on too strong. Since I couldn't ever remember to lead with a more chill-slash-disinterested disposition, when the ability to go idle came along, it was the only way I could both manufacture and imply apathy, and it was effective. The ultimate power move was to come back from idle, but not away, which showed your crush that you saw his message while you were away, virtually shrugged, decided to not return it, and go idle again. What an ice queen! I have goosebumps. Upon reflection, obsessing over if I should have been active, away, idle, or go invisible was an early lesson in feeling the need to overhaul my instincts in favor of what's appealing to boys. I guarantee you teenage boys were just existing while we meticulously curated our away messages, buddy info, and online behavior, using it as a billboard for our states of contentment and eligibility. Via AIM, I was learning at a young age that as a woman, I couldn't be too excited, available, or emotional. 
I'd take the guy's lead and mimic his level of interest, otherwise I'd appear to be crazy. If I messaged them too fast upon signing on, I'd get called a stalker. The same dance applies to texting or dating apps. It's very hard to convey tone and to clearly communicate electronically. It's especially interesting to think I was experiencing this for the first time at 10 to 12 years old. I would take a lack of response or a boy not saying hi when we were both active so incredibly personally that I developed habits to keep myself busy and allow myself to go idle. Not even in the pursuit of genuine hobbies or interests, just because I needed to kill time in between hits of male validation. I would go out of my way to find stuff to do around the house, keeping the computer screen in the corner of my eye so I could keep my mind off not being IM'd back while still being around enough to respond quickly if they did. So random. Notification parkour. I still have a lot of weird anticipatory behaviors when I'm waiting for news via text, call, or email to this day. It's crazy to think of how long I've been performing this communication-based parkour, mostly from trying to mitigate my anxiety about unresponsiveness. From AIM to GChat to text, I develop full routines to keep myself busy but semi-aware of electronic notifications, minimizing the opportunity for disappointment by limiting proximity while still optimizing the chance for response speed with visibility. If I'm waiting for news or a text or a call, I will put my phone face up but far away from me, breaking up the process of receiving news into two steps. One, the phone glowing from afar with a notification, and two, the mental preparation performed on my journey while walking to the other side of the room to see what it is. In the days of BlackBerry slash BBM, I had just started dating my now husband, and the subtle red light blinking in the distance was my North Star. My days were strung together like constellations following those lights. I mapped out my romance with the contents of these notifications because I, for the first time, was experiencing the magic of being courted by someone who get this, responded. When we were dating and there were times when I didn't know where he stood, I'd go to the movies to occupy myself while waiting for a reply. Even though I had other things going on, I always resented how consuming I found moments of romantic tension. But I'd feel better about it if I distracted myself in the meantime by supporting the arts. So I'd go see movies like Katy Perry, Part of Me 3D, and sit through the whole movie watching the small part of my phone visible from my purse on the floor, especially on days when it was being ever so stingy with the warmth of its notificational glow. That's the great part about killing time in between texts with the silver screen. The darker the activity, the more obvious the illumination will be out of the corner of your eye, all while you can pretend to be doing something else. Yes, it's exhausting to be me. See also activities where you can't use your hands that physically withhold you from texting too much. I swear to God, I got a lot more manicures when I was single because I needed activity-based straitjackets to curb my tendencies for highly calculated breezy follow-ups in the absence of a text response. There's an episode of the sitcom Happy Endings where the main characters take a fictitious industrial-grade sleep aid called Noche Tussin to literally induce themselves into slumber for the sole purpose of appearing too busy or apathetic to engage in communication with their significant other. I remember watching this highly exaggerated scene and being alarmed that I had never felt so seen. I'd be lying if I said I didn't knock myself out in the name of romance on more than one occasion in my youth. This is so troubling and unhealthy and not something you should ever do, but I thought it was normal. In fact, my roommates and I called it being on the quill and would pass around the bottle at night sometimes so we could get a whole night's sleep despite a broken heart. For years, I would get into these incredibly involved aim-only friends with conversational benefit situations where I was having daily flirtatious heart-to-hearts with members of the opposite sex, yet we almost never interacted face-to-face. 
It's so odd to even try to explain this without it sounding more pathetic or catfish-like than it was. I have a distinct memory of having an aim-only rapport with a football player at my high school. He was hot, he was intimidating, and he was way easier to talk to from behind a screen. I remember mapping out my route in between classes to pass him in the hall, planning my outfit and salutation with a level of effort in direct contrast to the breeziness I tried to exhibit. Sometimes he would smirk in my direction or pretend like he didn't see me. I never knew if he was embarrassed by me or shy, and it's probably for the best that I never found out. This happened quite often. I'd be too nervous to talk to a boy at school, but we'd develop a connection on AIM, talking near daily about our hopes and dreams. It was flirtatious and mutual and fun, and I'd grow meaningfully attached to them, praying that one day at school they'd make a move or formally ask me out. I would really genuinely fall hard and be absolutely crushed when almost always I'd find out these people asked out somebody else they barely knew. I'd have full Taylor Swift, you-belong-with-me style spirals, comparing myself to her, cursing her name, wondering why he'd pick a girl who didn't know him like I did, who didn't listen to music as cool as I did, who didn't get his humor like I did. They would always tell me that I misunderstood and we were just friends, or that I read too much into it, or that I was overreacting. They'd say they wanted to keep me as a friend, and they just didn't see me like that. Many times they'd have other girlfriends, and still I am me late at night wanting emotional support, like a teenage work wife for boys who didn't want to make it work with me. The worst was when they would tell me that they loved my personality but weren't attracted to me. My personality? Ugh, the audacity. How rude to bring up the Olsen twins for the third time in one essay. I hate admitting this, but I knew the second a male complimented my personality, it was a relationship death wish. It endlessly confused me for years to come why I would always get such positive feedback on how great I was, yet no one I liked wanted me to be their girlfriend. Can I also say that I'm mortified to have just said that I'm great, but hopefully you know what I mean. People almost overcompliment you in the process of letting you down, and those are the words you're left with to excavate once they've withheld further communication with you. But yes, not to brag. All things considered, I was very good at digital flirtation. The key word here is digital. I was still painfully uncomfortable in person, but I had fun getting to be a version of me that felt closer to who I was than I was able to access at the time in hallway conversations. In the moment, I always thought I was crushing it with saucy discourse, and I'd be surprised over and over again when they'd pick someone else. And I'd then spiral wondering if I talked too much, said something stupid, or got carried away. I'd often copy and paste conversations into Word documents, printing them out with my shaggy lyrics, to investigate where I went wrong because the male seemed to always claim it wasn't me when I suggested they led me on. People who tell you that you read too much into things don't take into consideration that some of us literally read them back, print them out, and study them closely to try and talk ourselves out of hurt feelings. Even though I wanted to be Krasenkuhl, I knew I wasn't crazy, and I felt taken advantage of. I don't mean to sound like one of those, but I'm a nice guy types who treats acts of human decency as transactions for personal gain. I would have been cool establishing a friendship if that was the vibe, but it wasn't. Bottom line, I think I was being used online for a soft place to land, for emotional connection, and for friendship with people I genuinely had a lot in common with, but I wasn't their type or at their level in real life. They wanted to take advantage of the company of a person they shared things in common with, but didn't want the appearance of dating, especially in the event of me not being as popular or cool or hot as the people they typically dated. As I detail this, I have no idea if this is at all relatable to anyone else in the context of AIM, but I do think this can happen in life, where people will lead you on because they are drawn to you and feel safe with you, but they also weaponize that sense of comfort as the reason for why they aren't sexually attracted to you. 
To be fair, I'm sure I've done this to people too, but the heartbreaks are far more formative experiences and they're the things you remember most. When I read back my journals, it made me really sad that I expressed having everything they seemed to need except for how I looked. I mostly felt okay about my appearance outside of kind of feeling plain, and I had plenty of friends. But in high school, college, and my first years of early adulthood, I felt like I didn't get the same treatment as other girls who recorded, romanced, and asked out all the time. That's the thing about self-esteem. It's not about what's actually happening or how anybody objectively looks. It's about how you feel, and it's often a function of how you're treated by other people. While I now see there were other forces at play that I had yet to notice, the pattern of men saying they weren't sexually attracted to me eroded my confidence in ways that made me feel unrecognizable to myself after several years. I had a long way to go. I'd be obsessed with the way that I looked and dressed and would use male validation as a barometer for my self-esteem for years to come. And this was just the gateway 2000 for the role technology would continue to play in my teens and 20s, navigating the politics of screens intersecting with matters of the heart. And my tense peer interactions weren't the only times online I got dumped like a truck, truck, truck. Despite the dim angles of the screen, for the most part, I learned a lot from being so committed to AOL Instant Messenger. As much as I resented the ways that digital communication didn't make me feel like I could ever say, I've got mail, M-A-L-E, I genuinely think it helped me cultivate my personality, sense of humor, and social skills. At the time, this was the social networking equivalent of scrolling TikTok or mindlessly tapping through stories. It was a powerful tool for remote connectivity, and at the very least, it required real dialogue instead of parasocial content consumption. All things considered, I don't think the long nights of meaningful conversations, after long days pretending I was away, were a waste of time. AIM is where I safely navigated the social politics of middle school, high school, and college, and no matter how dull a boy made me feel, I knew that I was sharp when it came to words. Even if these online relationships never materialized, looking back, there's something sweet about me getting the chance to build social confidence while I grew out of my awkwardness. This was a very early stage of digital communication, and little did I know I'd have my whole life ahead of me where I needed to constantly do things like curate an online presence, carefully draft typed messages, and work through how to convey humor in the absence of tone, not to mention navigate the fine lines between quick and desperate, leisurely and disinterested. I genuinely think so few things we do are a waste of time. It's what you do with it that counts. Eventually, I'd move on to being a Facebook wall climber, then a G chatterbox, until I found my footing on Instagram stories and in podcasting, and my love for the internet social club is still alive and well. Sometimes I still feel guilty, like I'm conning people through a screen to think I'm much more interesting than I am in real life. But at the same time, who I am in real life is a person who is able to come to life virtually. When you're a creative whose livelihood subsists of cultivating a digital audience, that becomes a skill in and of itself. I had to get myself out from behind a screen to get started, but I think I knew deep down there was someone out there who would think I was interesting in person, whose presence didn't make me feel like I needed to say I was in the shower or fake a surfing hobby to solicit their interest. Did I stop seeking validation? Of course not. I just set my sights away from the ocean and said, take me to the lakes. There was a summer camp that I heard had water skiing. What could go wrong? I figured learning an actual water sport could only help. I may have lacked confidence, but I've always been resourceful. And if at first I don't succeed, I just aim somewhere else. Obviously, my self-promotion for my book is deeply thirsty, but I am a generally very dehydrated and thirsty person as well. I don't always think we need to reinvent ourselves for the new year. Just rehydrate yourself with liquid IV. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, 
Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone, all in a single sugar-free stick, so you can feel like a hydrated, new you ready to take on 2024. Lord knows I am in a constant state of dehydration, and I am taking so much liquid IV with me on the road. Because like the easing convenience of putting a packet in a, you know, pre-measured packet in a glass or bottle of water on a plane, in the car, before a show, like I just I'm relieved I'm getting my nutrients. I'm relieved I'm getting, you know, double hydration. I don't like to drink too much water. I 40 ounces to freedom. I support all you Stanley Cuppers, but I, I haven't really gotten back in a game in a while. So one stick and 16 ounces of water is the life for me as of now. There's no artificial sweeteners. There's zero sugar in these new flavors, which the sugar-free are white peach, green grape, lemon, lime. Eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. And if you want to rehydrate yourself for the new year, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code BETHEREIN5 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code BETHEREIN5 at liquidiv.com. What was I going to say earlier? Oh, I just wanted to tell you the thing that's confusing to explain to press when people aren't like familiar with the podcast and stuff. Like The book at its core, it's a book that Beth's built. And I really mean that. Even though I like assemble the topics and the concept, what it draws from is your interest over the years being my barometer for like the chapters I chose for it. And people will reach out and be like, oh, my gosh, like they'll send me articles about like, you know, Bar- summer of Barbie and Taylor Swift or blah, blah, blah. Like you've been talking about this for years. And I'm like, actually, no, we have like we've been defending Taylor Swift for years. We've been trying to express the validation of women's leisure for years. You guys are like so ahead of the times, ahead of the curve. So it was honestly an honor to like tell some personal anecdotes, package all the stuff we've like learned kind of together over the years and put it in a format that's more easily digestible and easier to find than a podcast episode or a passing comment to have more like permanence. And I just don't know about the longevity of podcasts. Like, how cool is it? Like an American Girl doll. One day people will be like, ooh, this is this is how they lived back then. You know, just like we learned about how sad Kirsten was when she burned down her, you know, cabin because she let a rogue raccoon in tip over an oil lamp. But in terms of the topics you can expect, I'll just um, I'll kind of in order, like do a boilerplate for each chapter, because I even I until last week, I haven't I hadn't even told you all the chapter titles. And uh, just in case you just want to hear a little bit more about it before it's available. It, nothing has been more maddening than being so deep in this and not being able to share about it. So pardon me for my excitement. But yeah, so like, there are common themes we discuss, but just in a contextualize in a different way or I tell more backstory or I I kind of broaden the thoughts like I don't you know we the Jesse Spano thing I talked about on GMA like the Jesse Spano dive and talking about the manipulation of of laugh tracks kind of you know in 90s like sitcoms and especially teen programming they didn't have to use words to tell you who was funny and who was you know the punchline or who was to be taken seriously and who was a joke they told you everything you needed to know about the male writers, the adult male writers writing a teenage show, especially writing characters about young females' experiences that I, a nine-year-old on a network that was airing cartoons, you know, in adjacent spots, I was like, oh, so that's what feminists are like. But it's like, oh my God, I was watching a version of a feminist that was a, a male writer's response to like second wave feminist stereotypes. So when Jesse would make salient points Slater would be like, oink, oink, baby. Like, yeah, I'm a sexist pig. Deal with it, mama. Go back to the kitchen. Like that. It's so interesting to me to look back on how I found Jesse unlikable. But really, I was kind of 
well, I guess through words and through the laugh track, you know, really internalizing that if I wanted to fit in, not to speak out because everyone thought Jessie, her friends treated her like she was a stick in the mud, like she was a real drag, like, oh, fun Miss Bayside competition. You know, Jessie wears a trench coat. And like now I love that for her. But at the time it was like, oh, my God, put on the one piece, tuts. You know, I was such a baby misogynist. And I just I love revisiting pop culture and what I mean by the be kind and rewind. It's like, go easier on yourself. Like if you were a bad feminist like I was, maybe some parts of us are terrible people or just weren't researching enough. But I think there was a lot of internalized messaging we absorbed and didn't quite shake till we were older and put more thought into it. And again, you people are like busy and have shit going on, like aren't always able to unpack everything to kind of improve the way we think about our former selves. But if I could do that heavy lifting for you, I wanted to through kind of telling examples like this. And maybe you'll realize the stuff that influenced you that you didn't put a ton of thought into. Not like blame yourself for, you know, not being as evolved as you are now. Like I I think like over the past several years, I've just like started, I felt like ashamed for just a lot of the ways I like didn't understand the world or wasn't making other people feel seen and how like there's even a chapter where I have like a long kind of broad MLM metaphor and talking about diet culture and pursuit of beauty and body standards and how I feel like, you know, God, I'm both the the victim and the perpetrator of these things. And I need to take accountability for like not even realizing how the things I was chasing that I had adjacency to represented things that were incredibly exclusive for people that I actively like let left them out of or uh, alienated them by following. And yeah, it's kind of this like weird convoluted and it's like slightly confusing MLM metaphor because it's interesting to think about how we're victims of the culture, but we perpetrate that culture even when it's not sitting with us right or not serving us. And um, like an MLM, hon, I buy endless inventory of products to pursue, and it leaves me with a full medicine cabinet of serums that feels punishing to how empty I feel inside when I never learn that I'm not going to get myself worth through my appearance. But in in a world that, you know, shapes us and stares at us, it's like, it's not my fault. I care about how I look. And I, and I I won't let society shame you for that either. As I like to say, like, I will not be shamed for the way I choose to decorate the boxes they put us in. And what I kind of like about having the podcast on as a record, I remember the moments things came together for me when I heard myself talking because I don't have a ton of writing experience. The way I process is like as kind of extemporaneous speaking. So podcast episodes started to be like a way for me to work out thoughts so I could write about them with clarity. And I heard myself say that line um, about decorating the boxes they put us in in a really random episode. It was like the fourth Bama Rush episode I think I had done. And it was in that moment I was like, there it is. Like I had written this essay forever ago limited to that I redid 12 million times and I couldn't like figure out my like bigger point or like a metaphor to explain my conundrum. And that and talking about like Bama Rush as a form of high camp was the moment that I put the pieces together. And, and that's just what's interesting to me. Like, it's just not a normal creative process. And I just wanted to share that if you ever listen to my back catalog, you'll hear like Easter egg after Easter egg of things I was just starting to figure out at the time that I wanted to see if you would remember it or call it out or say you liked it. And then it would kind of give me the energy to um, keep writing about it. But that's I'm skipping around. So I guess I won't go into every chapter, but like the, the types of things we're covering that kind of are in order um, relative to the chapter list is like, you know, first kind of kicking off with my confusion toward my multitudes, the messaging that you can't be like smart and superficial through this Teen Talk Barbie anecdote. And limited to is really an exploration of 
what it ultimately concludes, which, you know, was I empowered by the girl power world found inside the walls of a limited two, or did it represent yet another ceiling they wanted me to believe I was limited to? And how this very same things I celebrate and love about my female experience are the very same things that I fear hold me back sometimes with a limited catch 22. Um, and then back in the day beds, it's like a, the, a fun, it's my now and then it's, it's a fun whimsy chapter that about, about the importance of friendship and female bonding rituals and the innocence of youth and the millennial lore of sleepover culture and kind of like the analytics of like the weirdness of being at somebody else's house with their food and their, you know, possibly God forbid, lack of plush accommodations. Um, I will not sleep in a sleeping bag. And then the third chapter you listen to about AIM and, you know, just those of us that were very like friend zone vibes, you know, virgins who learned they could really dazzle verbally more so than anything else. Um, So those are the first few chapters. And then chapter four is called God Must Have Spent a Little Less Time on Me. And it felt important and relevant in ways that apply to people that were part of communities like this. but also. The reason I ultimately included it is because I think there are a lot of ways the biblical patriarchy like really seeps into secular spaces like public schools were influenced heavily by abstinence only education and dress codes and purity and even Disney with purity rings. So I was like, you know, maybe this isn't that specific to me. Maybe we can expand this, but also like kind of get a point across about, you know, being uh, discerning when it comes to uh, sources of influence for kids, especially now that I'm a parent, this really resonates with me. I still don't really know if this is maybe against my better judgment, but I speak pretty frankly about my experience dabbling in evangelical Christianity and try to find the comedy and catharsis and, as I like to say, unpacking my camp duffel and just asking myself, like, if it was right and okay for me to, like, come for the water skiing and extra cheese pizza, but feel like I have to stay for the impromptu soul saving after being like methodically shamed for behaviors that make me human at an age where I was too young to know that just because someone has authority or power over you doesn't mean that what they're saying is truth. It's less about the doctrine or spirituality and more about how it really needs to be reconsidered the way young people are spoken to and shamed before they even have the chance to develop any sense of self-esteem that they could find elsewhere besides their salvation in the next life. It's like, well, let's create informed, capable young people in this life first. And then maybe let's get into that. I felt like the book was incomplete without a little purity culture discussion, because I think it affected a lot of people in ways they maybe don't even always realize. And at the very least, now that we're many of us are becoming parents, I, I just want to remind you what this can look like and how to not talk to young people about their personal autonomy and their body and their curves. But again, the book's fun. It's just a small part of it. Um, Fun gal. Then I move on to talking more about high school in the context of like, I had the, again, the multitudes, two parts of me. It was like the church and the culture and the church. I was always saying they're at war with the culture. Like I was, I was pretty pro culture uh, in that, you know, what's interesting to me uh, looking back on my youth is like maybe like the most pervasive uh, adjective of my existence was like popularity, being popular, like pers- the pursuit of popularity was like my verb. It's what you do. And I'm equal parts embarrassed and delighted that I spent so much of my existence chasing like the moving target of trends and status symbols, because as we've talked about recently, like the years I didn't have a strong sense of self, like hitching my bandwagons to my future star power felt like the easiest way to 
to stick to the status quo and like shove down any and all desire for uniqueness at my own expense. It really felt like noble at the time. Like it was the right thing to do to socially survive where now I'm like, holy consumerism. I just, you know, how much stock can you really put in like clothes and fleeting trends to like up your cool factor? But like the butterflies I would feel upon hoping, wishing, praying that this new article of clothing or this thread hair wrap I got in spring break would be the key to the new me. And I'd come back to school, a popular girl, like in the song in Teen Witch. If brand could spoon feed you social acceptance, hell yeah, I was going to devote all my brain power not to trig, but like finding ways to rig a perfect polo stack. But I detail how I couldn't afford like the hottest left chest tiny mascots and and how I like worked around it. And my like love for (laughs) DIYing is born from like just trying to fit in. And uh I told you about like the diet culture out or out out chapter. That's one of my faves. And obviously what the live show is kind of based off of. After that kind of college chapter, I talk about mental health and how something that's like is oddly millennial to me in terms of how we came of age versus how kids now do is that like we had so such little information or mainstream conversations about mental health. Like I mentioned earlier, Hardly any pop culture or media that at least I grew up paying attention to, like, spoke about mental health struggles in a way that, honestly, like, in a dignified manner that didn't only represent extremes. And it was kind of like, okay, if I'm not at the level of, like, girl interrupted or a beautiful mind, like, I'm probably good. But learning way too late in life, like, the difference between, like, butterflies and an anxiety disorder um, or reacting to your negative circumstances versus, like, clinical depression. And I didn't learn that well into my 20s. and. So many people deal with this. I'm not like unique or trying to like paint a sob story. But like, as I was writing this, I realized so much of the times I remember the most are like from when like my heart was breaking or I would process by writing endless journals. And I cataloged so much pop culture and entertainment, I think, because I used to pass the time being entertained by stuff because I didn't know how to cope with my own melancholia, to be honest. So like pop culture was my friend (laughs) in my times of need. So then that's after that, I go into the business story. But I kind of expanded to like, you know, how as a millennial in the pop culture that shaped me, I was like inspired by the the chic city dwelling PR and fashion and advertising girlies from like 2000s pop culture and romantic comedy. And what I like always saw in my life being and in like many ways, I think like I kind of main character my way to that path in a very roundabout fashion where I found myself like in a city like with a statement teapot uh just like the girls in my favorite rom-coms in like a vague marketing job and i maybe didn't even know if that's why um but yeah that's where i talk about like my career also and then after that i have i kind of carried over themes we talked about in childless millennial because that turned out to be like such a cornerstone of my career like weirdly um but for kicks i kind of tell through an elaborate parent trap analogy where i talk about me struggling with what i call um the love marriage baby carriage pipeline and how like formulaic we thought things were when we were young only to find out like there's not a single human who doesn't experience a, a bursting of said pipeline at some point because things like dating and marriage and or babies are things that one you may not desire and two they aren't guaranteed but we don't talk about that when we speak to young women um about their futures and i realize it's kind of perverse that like when i pictured my future as like career driven as i've always been and as like on the fence about ha- having kids that i've been at times like when i envisioned my future it like kind of stopped around the age i am now i didn't imagine myself like in my 40s in my 50s i imagined myself like in my mid 30s doing what 
being married and having kids. You know, even when I didn't know if I wanted them, they were something I always thought I'd have. And it really like made me think a lot about how so much of our identity gets buried in who we are to other people as a wife and mom. So just like trigger warning, I talk about loss. I talk about wanting what other people have. I talk about how hard it is to be different life phases than your friends. And in the spirit of that and friendship being a theme of the book, I kind of wanted that chapter to be a friend to everyone in every circumstance and make them feel validated in their choices, regardless if they depart from tradition or they're as traditional as they come and not fulfilling you in the ways you always hoped. Like, I just think this phase of life is so weird. and, And we are all operating from such different vantage points that can make harping on other people's circumstances relative to yours, like the main focal point. And at that time I wrote it, I was in a place where like going to baby showers was really hard for me. And I didn't know where or how to express that. And I kind of wanted to capture it somewhere where it could be like kind of a friend if people also didn't know where to go in kind of an isolating circumstance. But I also kind of talk about how even though like childbearing has like not been straightforward and at the time I didn't know how it would end up, like it it turned out to not be as scary as I thought it would be. And like the way people talked about IVF and stuff horrified me and freezing embryos is such a privileged thing that I know not everyone can do, but I kind of did it for my own safety and for my mental health, among other things. I thought fertility treatments were like the end of the road, a last resort, something I would just like would never do. And I don't even know, but where did I get that from? But I, I've never felt more empowered in such a, in a process marked with so much uncertainty than actually being involved in a methodical process where I felt an ounce of control relative that to the n- nightmare I found trying to conceive to be just being disappointed in between periods. And I was kind of like, I want to tell people like the other side of the story that like, if this is something you want to pursue, if you're in a state that covers it, like Illinois is, California, like, I, 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 don't, I don't find, I don't, there's, I don't feel an ounce of shame toward it. And like, I just want to shout it from the rooftops that it gave me a lot of peace where I thought it would be like my end point of unrest with fertility. Anyways, oh my God, I'm rambling. But I just, yeah, I guess I wanted to tell you what's in it because I guess I'm really nervous that if people don't like the more nostalgic whimsy parts, they won't get to the serious parts or vice versa. Or, you know, it's so funny. People are like, oh my God, I love the first half. And there's a camp of people that love the second half because the vibes are different. I think the one thing I was running into, I didn't know what I should do with some things that are more controversial. You know, sharing how I think some of the extreme versions of Christian teachings like normalize an abusive dynamic from a male power figure. They're like, yes, I do. I make kind of a just general like humanitarian argument and like that just pro like, you know, giving women options, like being pro-choice. It's not an extremist position. Like, I just think it's so important to frame it that way. And these things are going to get me absolutely bombed on Goodreads. But like, I ultimately decided I don't even care. I care about not doing the thing I did most of my life when I was avoiding being like Jesse Spano, which is only participating in the kind of girl power that like benefits me and only me. And like not including that stuff that I felt was important and maybe a different perspective that some people might find like approachable in this context. Not that I'm trying to be manipulative, but just it's about sharing your experiences, right? And them all having validity. And I think sometimes people would assume somebody who's talking about religion in that way is just like bitter or ousted or um, people, obviously the pro-choice movement is like so maligned. And yeah, I guess it's, I wanted to say like, this book's so important to me because I wrote it for us and I wrote it in a way that is so me that it almost defies a lot of <laughs> kind of best practices. Like if if I wrote this book for critical reception, it would basically require for me to not be myself because I'm not a technical writer. I'm a creative writer. My sentences are often absolutely insane and unnecessary in their composition. Uh, but writing for me is a sport in that sense. Like I love to play around and not take it so seriously. And 
have fun with language and like for all the ways that's been like one of the most corny and embarrassing aspects of my personality and you know reasons I get friend zoned um you guys have, have always proved to me that like in the right hands or in the right ears the things that make you insufferable to one person are the very thing that makes you special to another i've always wanted to be a writer and i was able to sell one children's you know satire book back in 2018 but and it was a huge like breakthrough for me like career wise in terms of like pivoting into another category when i was pretty lost after my girl boss venture but you know it didn't commercially perform that exceptionally and i think i was worried that that would hold me back from being able to get a deal that was more aligned with the direction i wanted to go in and like the commentary space but you know for the better part of since i've been podcasting and wanting to kind of translate the podcast into something literary i couldn't for the life of me get publishers or agents to like look in my direction for another book deal for years. And, you know, the only thing that they were remotely interested in was like the be there in five story of like my weird career, because what are they looking at? Like what I've gotten pressed for as like a proxy for interest level. And it's just it's really hard to get anything creative out into the world these days unless you like already have somewhat of a platform, which is really difficult thing to build from scratch. It used to be a lot simpler back in the day. And it's especially simple if you just do loop giveaways. So you get a lot of followers and inflate your numbers. But I'm not bitter. And yeah, I just I didn't want to write that book. And I know this all sounds like kind of extra to explain, but I always want to like tell you how things happen, not to be like self-obsessed, but because like I'm a creative person, always dreamed of having like a career where I could do stuff like this. And I don't have a lot of like um, formal like, you know, like I mentioned, uh, like permission or credentials. But creative jobs are like the one unique industry where potential and talent like kind of does matter and can be as important as some of the other credentials. Just because I wasn't an English major or didn't major in creative writing or didn't do like a fellowship somewhere doesn't mean that I couldn't hone that craft on my own. Um, and I just think I never felt like it was legit, even though I always felt I was a decent writer. And um, I always want you to remember that, you know, obviously in fields where you need credentials, for the love of God, don't become a coach of coaches, coaches about something you're not qualified to talk about. But in the context of self-expression, um, it's just going to take a lot of vulnerability and discomfort and honestly, people ridiculing you, but nothing's ever going to happen if you wait for it. And you just like have to put yourself out there over and over and over. And the way the book deal even happened was because of doing that at a live show and literally a Beth being in the audience and like, she's who got my book deal. It wasn't my connections. It wasn't my like growth and popularity. Uh, you know, like I literally had to keep saying what I wanted to say over and over and over and hope that it would fall on the right ears who could advocate for me. And Hannah Nesbitt did that when she was in the audience at one of my track five shows. And I was like reading excerpts from essays I had written on stage because I, I did not know for the life of me how to get them published or like what I was even doing. But like I tried to do with the podcast, I was essentially testing mater material while I was in person. And like that night changed my entire life. Sometimes I hesitate to tell the loftier kind of chance meeting elements of my career story because situations with right place, right time, serendipity, et cetera, aren't like relatable or actionable. But um it's actually not that. Um, I could say I'm lucky all I want, but the reality is it was years and years of talking about these sorts of things, of refining how I talked about them, of finding my unique angle and of fighting for their importance, even when I wasn't really being reassured in any formal way uh, that it was the right path. And um, 
you just never know who's listening, who's paying attention. What's the saying to be? It's like I bet I botch this all the time. Um, you're only as strong as the tables you dance on, the cocktails you drink, and the friends you keep. What is the saying I'm looking for? Uh, oh, to be. It's great to be loved. It's divine to be understood. My God, it was like a divine interaction when I was on a Zoom with all women who I didn't have to over-explain myself to, who she, Hannah had already explained to them what my type of content was and like advocated for me. And they were just like, yeah, we get it. And they did something that like to this day, and, until like I see a book in stores, like I, this whole time I was like, there's got to be a catch. Why would they take the hedge their bets on me of all people? Because it just, it, it's crazy how hard something can be. And then when the right thing can come along easily and it, it makes you suspicious and it makes you write off the work you did to get there. Um, and while writing the book was literally the hardest thing I've ever done, uh, getting this book deal was was truly a function of like a loyal listener who really cared. And um, Hannah, I love you for making this happen for me and I'll never be able to thank you enough. I think what I've learned about publishing, I was talking to a friend about this recently. It's like, this is not the right way to say it, but it's kind of like a poor man's venture capital. I don't mean the publisher, I mean me, in terms of like, even though I have no provable income generation for you based on my track record, here I am pitching to you this idea. And you hear a million people pitch ideas and you take on some of them. And the way publishing works and really startups is most businesses won't have much commercial viability, will have trouble taking off, but that's okay because the handful that do pay for the ones that don't. And in mitigating the risk of things like your talent and skill and potential, and in many cases, your popularity, your existing audience, the publishers figure out what to take a chance on. And um, I just didn't have a lot of the trappings of like a person you'd like deaf want to take a chance on. <laughs> I, I let's just say in the shark tank of books, I I'm not sure I had the most solid pitch, but I had a lot of heart. And sometimes that does matter. Sometimes Lori is a sucker for the part. <laughs> but no, I, I knew I guess the difference is I knew I could do it, uh, but I knew it was going to be a lot of work and take me a while to figure it out. And I knew, knew my own process. And I just kind of sometimes you just have to be like, if you if you can somehow find it in you to trust me, I promise I won't let you down. And I need to put on Patreon my original book proposal because for this book, it was like I had all of these disparate ideas loosely based on the idea of deep life lessons coming from shallow places. But the the uh, cha example chapter titles I turned in were um, simply unhinged. Light my black flame candle. Everything I know about virginity I learned from Hocus Pocus, White Houses, or Dina Carter's Strawberry Wine. Like, could, th could I write more than that sentence about that? Um, am I religious or do I just like live music? My confusing faith journey as a result of participating in mega church youth groups, often confusing the feel-good vibes of chord progressions for the Holy Spirit, which that turned into God must have spent a little less time on me. I have one that's like, this is the Molly Samantha complex, uh, formative, performative activism, care of how my Livestrong bracelet and hours clocked reading chicken soup for this teenage soul made me think I was doing community service. I mean, these are like the most, it's the most random shit. Um, I have one called the Bladell test that just ended up turning into a sentence in my intro. Trampoline on me. Socioeconomic cues that made me interested in your friendship, like your house having an intercom trampoline, ample snacks, AG dolls, two-story foyer, parents that let you order appetizers and desserts. And I moved some of those thoughts into uh, back in the day bed because it was adjacent to sleepover culture. My truth with dare, a child with rigorous dare drug education that scared and prepared me to resist hard drugs only to be an adult with narky vibes who has never offered them, frowny face. 
Um, I pitched Serotonin Plain and Tall, which I did end up writing. Garden Statement Necklace, which turned into a podcast episode. This is me twying, which turned into a podcast episode about Twilight. I mean, this is so fucking random. Barnes and Noble to Barn Wedding Mogul, a loosely formed theory I have that people who read real books went to libraries and probably developed real interests and taste. People who grew up reading at the local Barnes and Noble just went to read magazines they weren't allowed to buy and then put them back, likely entering into a lifetime of feeling dictated by passing trends, e.g. barn weddings and millennial barn doors inside the home. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> yeah, that's what I proposed. And they were like, hell yeah. Like, trampoline on me? To Sally, to Laura, to Hannah, to Jessica, to Erica, to Alicia, to my agent Haley, my manager Courtney. I'm just... Yeah, I'm grateful to have been in such good hands. And um, I know this isn't like an awards acceptance speech, but this is pretty much my magnum opus to me. Like, I, I don't even know if I'll ever have anything else to say. I said it all in this book. And um, it just it was it was a lot of work. And I'm just so proud of it. And I uh, being a self-employed person who's always run my own shit, have a real problem relinquishing control. And I can be a little intense, I think. But I've just so appreciated working with such, you know, champions of books written by women and who believe what I believe, what I detail in Say by the Bell Jar, that like women need to be the ones telling their own experiences. You know, representation is important on screen, but storytelling in the context of fiction or nonfiction, behind the scenes, showrunners, writers, like I quote Bell Hooks in that um, passage, her saying, you know, where there is distance, stereotypes abound. And really realizing that so much of the incorrect things I assumed about people or what life would be like were from characters written by people that did not share lived experiences with their characters. Therefore, we're basing them off of stereotypes or assumptions and, you know, mediating to the masses their response to a certain archetype and not actually the, the contours of the lived experience of that character. And in Say by the Bell Jar, I quote my friend Charlene Polite, who was on the podcast where we talked about our like market research corporate days. And she talked about the work she does in um, using uh, audience measurement data to inform research, like not just about like how many people watch something, but like how they interpreted, internalized and experienced the media. And uh, she does yeah, such fascinating research about like things like stereotypes and the role of representation. So if you like listen back to that, you, you'll start to hear my wheels, wheels turning. That's the first time I mentioned Jesse Spano. So you can kind of figure out when I was writing what and who inspired what. And uh, just as I'm like a white girl from the suburbs writing about a narrow experience. So I want to be abundantly clear about that. This is just my experience. Like, so I'll write about what I know. I, I it, for all the ways I can't write about what you know, I want to encourage you that like if you are a creative type or if you have something to say, just to like keep creating shit, keep telling stories, keep if you if you enjoy observing and pathologizing your life the way I do, like do it. it you know, like the unexamined life is not worth living. Socrates, Rachel Hollis, whoever said it, <laughs> same same diff. Um, you know, if we're talking about milestones and I'm celebrating mine publicly, I want to be clear on how things happen and how. They happen for me time and time again is one of you goes to bat for me. Um, and it's not finding success in all the places I always thought I would or had to. It's um, really the communities like everything. And I don't want to be the only person benefiting from that, which leads me to I, you know, part of the live shows coming up is I want to be talking about all the things I give a lot of F's about, hence the F's in my subtitle, friendship, feelings, fangirls and fitting in. And I want you you to like benefit from the same community that I've been able to be a part of. And in every city, if you go to at Be There and Five's Instagram, we in the highlights, there is a form 
where you can submit your info. And um, we had like Patreon people that volunteered to coordinate in each city, like meetups for before or after the live show or other related events. So, um, and by live show, I mean like the book tour I'm about to go on. So like, it's not just you coming to support me, but like also I want you to be able to find community in your city from people with similar interests because making friends is really hard. Um, and I don't want you to feel worried if you're coming alone. You shouldn't, regardless if you meet up or not, like truly it's not weird. People bring their spouses. It's not weird. It's even less weird probably than even track five because that, you know, if they weren't to Taylor Swift, I was like, well, enjoy the next three hours, sir. <laughs> I'm so excited to see you. I, I'm, I, it's been so long since I've toured. Um, and I want to talk about more of these topics in more depth and show you visuals. And like, we just have a lot of fun stuff planned. So yes, friendly reminder, I think Boston is now sold out or at least close. Maybe there's like 10 tickets left and Richmond G general admission is sold out, but we might release tickets from VIP or already have. I'm not sure. But if you, you want to celebrate and criticize the millennial zeitgeist and, you know, party like it's be there in 2005 with a night of not just going out, but out out with like minded women. Come see me starting next Wednesday, uh, kicks off in New York City at the Gramercy Theater. Then I'll be in Richmond, Virginia, then Philly, then Atlanta, then Denver, then Salt Lake, then San Francisco, then Anaheim, then Nashville, then Dallas, then Boston, then Chicago. To talk about one in a millennial, maybe incorporate some track five elements for old time's sake. And if you're up to spend the extra cash so I and the staff can justify like staying longer, keeping the venue open, you can buy a book bundle. I think you can buy signed copies from like that in the front. But like the book bundle upgrade with the ticket is like a VIP meet and greet thing. So we can like talk, take pictures, do whatever you want. Um, and it just by default, it helps the numbers be smaller so we can like actually hang out a little bit. Also, if you didn't, if you want to do that and you didn't when you bought your general admission ticket, like contact your venue because I think you can like upgrade separately, even if you already bought one. And um, oh, also, if your book club is reviewing one in the millennial, email Courtney at be there in five dot com. Because I might be coming out with like a guide for book clubs and like a fun way for people to bond over their shared memories. And I, if I have time and um, I don't know, part of me is like, maybe I want to crash a few. I've always wanted to do what Chris Harrison did for Bachelor viewings. But I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for bearing with me in the next few weeks. I say it'll be some of the craziest of my life in all the best ways because a dream of mine is coming true. But also, yeah, I'm going to have to promote the crap out of this book. And uh, it's all, it's the only thing I can do to make how much work, <laughs> work it was worth it. And uh, I'm really proud of it. Do I think it's needlessly wordy? And I, I do I wish I wasn't super pregnant while finishing it and whittled it down more? Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, it's who I am. And I kind of almost by example wanted to be a person like being cringy, you know, and just existing and in hopes to encourage you to do the same. Because if there's one word that at this point millennials have unfortunately become identified as, it's cringy. I think there's something empowering and just being yourself and letting them cringe. Lovely Amanda Montel, cultish fame. She blurred my book and on the cover, she says, this book makes me proud to be in my millennial cringe era. And I love that. And I say in the acknowledgments to at the time, my unborn son, you know, I hope what you take away is that if you cringe, it means you're doing it right. Whether it's lessons learned performing some light witchcraft at a 90s sleepover inspired by now and then seances uh or learning the art of dig digital seduction on aim and i want to argue that the places where you thought you may rot your brain might ultimately be the places where you find who you are and one of the things i say about the best in the book and i'll won't spoil it not that it's anything that great just make sure you read the acknowledge acknowledgments in terms of me thanking you but um i think the one sentence i used to describe us is like we're people that love to listen to i knew you were trouble but absolutely hate getting in trouble 
And <laughs> we may not be the coolest or edgiest gals in town, but I firmly believe that, you know, the away messages were wrong all this time. And well-behaved women do make history. Let's hear it for the normals. Our stories matter, too. Let's hear it for the cooperative gals who just wanted to fit in. Oh, what do you do when your identity is simply a function of wanting to be other people? <laughs> Tough to say. That's why I wrote it. Love you. Thanks for listening. Wherever books are sold. Tuesday, one twenty-three. Look out on Wednesday because I did something else cool this week. I can't tell you yet. And uh, as always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. <laughs> <laughs>